0: Thank you, Alan. If you're not with us last Sunday, I want to make sure you know who our guest uh, preacher is this morning. Beth Ernest is back with us again today. Beth uh, is a ordained covenant pastor and has served congregations in New Hampshire, Michigan, Ohio, and in Indiana. And while Beth has served churches in a permanent call, she also has a a unique experience of serving nine churches as transitional or as interim pastor, helping congregations through journeys of conflict resolution. entering into denominational change, grief, uh, structural transition, and, and revitalization. Beth has also worked as a hospice chaplain, providing end of life care to patients and their families. So she holds a Master's of Divinity from Boston University School of Theology and a Certificate of Spiritual Direction for North Park Theological Seminary, and she's also beginning a D-Med in the Sacred Art of Writing at Western Seminary, so she's busy. Um, she's here this morning with her husband, James, who also works in, in Christian publishing, and they reside in Caledonia, Michigan. Uh, the Ernest have two grown children and they have been traveling. So we were able to catch Beth and James on, the, on their outbound trip and, on, and again on their way back. So Beth, thank you for, again for being with us. Would you please welcome Beth Ernest this morning?
1: Thank you, Kurt. It is good to be back. It is good to be back. And it's good to also dig into Colossians, this sermon series about Christ being the center. In last week's reading, you may remember that Paul was warning the Colossian church about the dangers of a group of very mixed-up Christians in their midst. These were people who had mystical practices and they had secret knowledge with some very odd ideas like communing with angels and cozying up to God by punishing their physical bodies, and celebrating obscure Jewish rituals. And Paul warned the church to not be fooled by these people who were turning their ideas into idols. These pretenders didn't have Christ at the center, yet Christ is the one who holds all things together. So naturally, there was a splintering, a conflict, in the Colossian church. Now, lots of scholars have thought that this letter of Paul to the Colossians was written to instruct newly baptized Christians and to encourage them in their new faith. These newbies needed to understand what was going to be different now about their lives, that they were baptized, that they were members of Christ's body. What had changed for them? Here is what they needed to understand. By virtue of their baptism, they had entered into the very story of Jesus' death. Earlier in the letter, Paul writes this, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. In other words, when plunged beneath the waters of baptism, the converts were symbolically buried in the tomb. As part of their baptismal vows, they had to forswear Satan and sin, or Satan and all his pomps, as the liturgies later would say. They had pledged themselves to a new life. And more importantly, God had pledged himself to them. But they don't stay under the waters. They rise. And what happens at the rising from these waters? Well, they come up into a clean new world. Imagine yourself, maybe this past weekend, on a really hot day, and you're out working in your garden, and you're a mess. Maybe you've gotten into poison ivy, as sometimes happens around our house. You're pulling weeds out of cracks in, the, in your uh, driveway, and you're getting tar all over yourself. And you can't guarantee that some of that weed killer didn't get on your legs as well, because you weren't all that careful, or the wind was blowing, and your muscles ache, and your back hurts and all that stuff is sticking to you and it's not going to come off by itself. So you go home, you go indoors, and you work on those tar stains with some oil and apparently baking soda works pretty well for that too. So, that, so says Google. You pull out your poison ivy soap and you scrub down a couple times with that. and You wash thoroughly with cold water. You scrub under your fingernails and then you relax under the shower head until you're clean and you're refreshed. So that's similar, like sort of similar to what baptism does. It removes the dirt that had previously stuck to us, which in Paul's word is flesh. Now, what does that mean, flesh? What does it mean biblically? Well, first of all, what it isn't. It isn't this stuff. It isn't our skin okay? Paul's not talking about dirt or tar or poison ivy or about our physical bodies. Our bodies and their functions are good. We hear about that in Genesis 1, right? And it was good, very good. Paul's not talking about some dualism here, that there's a body that's bad and there's a spirit that's good. That is not what this is about, even though Many Christians, in fact those misguided souls from last week, were trying to convince people that that's exactly what this is about. But that's that's not it. When Paul talks about the flesh, he's saying that sin has added this thick layer of tarnish that has glommed on to God's good creation, spoiling and perverting what was created to be good. And Paul names a lot of things on this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, lying. All that's been clinging to us and clinging to the world like so much Velcro taking what was meant to be good and dirtying it all up we don't need it the flesh as paul calls it keeps us off balance like a gyroscope that's wobbling and not not on balance anymore it's not spinning fast and true it's not at its center we get off center but now the holy spirit's action in us at baptism restores That clean and good, true image in which we were created, the image of God. So, maybe you're asking, well, if that's the case, then why is there still sin in the church and in my life? A lot of things on that list likely sound quite familiar if we are honest with ourselves, right? Lust, anger, rage, greed... We hear it all around us. We live with the effects of it in our society, and in our families, at our jobs, and even among believers. And you're right. Baptism is not an ejector seat that catapults us out of this world and its woes. Rather, it is a reclothing that prepares us to live in this world without being destroyed by it had we been wearing gloves and goggles and the right protective gear we wouldn't have gotten all that tar and poison ivy on us but more than just protective gear Christ is giving us a wardrobe of celebration for we celebrate the resurrection his and ours like all those wedding clothes that Jesus talks about in the parables you know how he's always talking about people getting new clothes? Because they're going to celebrate life with the Savior. Baptism is opening up a new wardrobe of clothes that Christ invites us to wear. Clothes like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and the ability to bear with each other and forgive one another, which I think are some of the most needed and difficult clothes there are. Greatest in this wardrobe is the garment of love that binds all the rest of these virtues together. So how do we maintain such a life? How do we keep that new wardrobe clean? Well, Paul says that we're to look above. Specifically, he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, in his other letters, Romans and elsewhere, Paul talks about our baptism into Christ's death as something that has already happened, it's in the past, and then he points to our resurrection with Christ as a future event. That's usually how Paul talks about this. But in Colossians, he speaks of both as already having happened. We learn that believers have symbolically died to our old selves in baptism, as as Christ died on the cross and was buried, and... We've already been raised with him to a new life, even as we are here on earth. We look to Christ where he now awaits us, above, at the right hand of God. That is where our new identity lies. So in that regard, we are to look above to where his glory now dwells. So perhaps you're saying, you know, I live in Lafayette, Indiana. It's kind of flat around here. There's not really an above. Maybe I have a family and a mortgage and a job and obligations to other people, bills to pay, things that keep me here. What's all this talk about Christ dwelling in glory above? And what difference does that make? Well, it makes a lot of difference. Because Paul is talking about the ascended Lord. We're comfortable talking about Jesus, the babe. We get a lot of practice with that every year. The boy in the temple, the, the chooser of disciples, Jesus, the teller of parables, the friend of fishermen, the goader of the Pharisees, the healer, the friend of friendless women, the ba- the breaker of bread, the betrayed, the crucified, the dead and the buried, and even the resurrected Christ. But we don't talk so much about Christ, the ascended Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth, who shall come one day and return. So come with me as I talk a little bit about the where and the when of the ascended Christ. In the 60s, there was a very short-lived TV show, very silly TV show called It's About Time. Does anyone remember that? Seriously, am I the only one? Okay, well, the opening song, (laughs) we only got one channel, so that was all we could get. The opening song went like this. It's about time, it's about space, about two men in the strangest place. It's about time, it's about flight, traveling faster than the speed of light. You can see how bad this show was. Not the greatest (laughs) lyrics, but it, it wasn't the greatest show. Max and Hector were astronauts who ended up passing through the space faster than the speed of light, and they wind up in the Stone Age, chased around by some very goofy cave dwellers, one of whom strangely looked like Imogene Coca. But where were they, and when were they? What time? What space? I think we can do away with them now. (laughs) Bye, Max. Bye, Hector. We say that the Ascension is about time and space, not just a point in time when Jesus left Earth or the specific place from which he floated off and shall return. Ascension is about an unbounded eternity and the unboundaried cosmos. We have as much ability to comprehend or control that immeasurable time and immeasurable space as we do to return to the prehistoric era. How can we fathom the Christ who existed before time was instituted? Because time is for us. God doesn't need time. We're the only ones who need time. How can we understand this Christ who existed before the earth began? Can we chart a flight plan? for Jesus' journey to the Father? When we read the book of Acts, that, that tells how Jesus ascended into heaven, well, where did he go? That is, into what space? And when will he come again in glory, as is promised? That is, at what time? And what difference does it make? Every once in a while, We hear of some religious gurus that are heading off to the hills and the caves to prepare for Christ's return. And not long after that, we hear of that same guru heading home again, as the when question is never a done deal. All such doom days come and go like any other day. Jesus told his disciples as much. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. We are stuck with a lot of tarnish on us, still to clean away until that day comes. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we recite these words. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, From thence he shall come to judge the quick, or the living, and the dead. We say that because that's what the Bible teaches. The letter to the Colossians tells us that the resurrected Christ rose into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. That is the where we're talking about. Our limited minds can't comprehend, as no GPS is created that has coordinates for that yet he'll be there until his return. And then, Paul says, we too shall appear in glory. So no doubt we can all say something about the difference it makes that Jesus, or that God created us in his image. That God came in human flesh to experience our world. We can say something about what it matters to us that that Jesus gathered disciples, people like you and me, and taught them the right way to live, and he showed them the way of righteousness. As Jesus' followers, we can especially say something about what it means that in love, Jesus Christ took on our sins and took them to the cross, suffering for our sakes, experiencing death as humans do. And we can testify to the importance of his resurrection from the dead. But what about his ascension? What can we say about that? Well, if Jesus were, had only come to earth to live as one of us, teaching and healing, he might be remembered today as a good teacher, as a man of compassion, sort of a Gandhi of the past, a wonder worker. If Jesus had come and lived among us and died for us, even sacrificially, and had been resurrected only to die again, like any other mortal, he might be considered a good teacher to whom God had granted a special miracle, like the rising of Lazarus, or even Don Piper, that man who wrote the best-selling book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, which is really quite an interesting book. But Jesus came among us died for us, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, where he reigns over all things. It is the ascension part of Jesus' story that we so rarely talk about, but it's the part of the Jesus story that puts all the other parts into perspective, namely, that Jesus Christ is God, ruler of heaven and earth, Lord of all kingdoms above and below the earth, It is in the ascension that we see him fully as he is, the center, the one in whom all things hold together. As the wonderful hymn says, Hail him who saves you by his grace, and crown him Lord of all. And this is how the ancient church so often depicted Christ, Pantocrata, the Lord of all things, all-powerful. We who hail him are his baptized community, the church militant, existing between the time of Christ's ascension into heaven and his expected return. And in the meantime, as Jesus told his disciples, the Holy Spirit is with us as his emissary, fueling the church with the power of God to do his bidding on earth. We are to take on the wardrobe that prepares us for those duties in the here and now, That compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. The only chance we have of fulfilling that is to keep our eyes on him. Because he is the image of all those qualities. Recently, we were fostering a very, very cute little Welsh terrier puppy. Maisie is a lively little dog, just six months old, when she was with us. I was trying to train her. Have you ever tried to train a puppy? Yeah, well, I went online. <laughs> of course, you have to start there. And I learned, went to all these places of what you're supposed to train your puppy to do. I, tried to, I trained her to sit. That pretty much worked. I mean, you have treats, right? So she sat. To lie down, which would sometimes work if you had the treat right in front of her and you went down like this. I mean, if you were saying lie down, you, no, you, no, she wouldn't do that. But if you had the treat, leave it, leave it. She got actually pretty good at that. Take it, 100%. All the time. She would always take it. And stay, you know, sometimes she'd stay, come, never, <laughs> ever. She'd look at me like, how big's that treat, you know? She she would never come. And every puppy training course I explored said, you have to teach this, look at me, look at me. That was a new one, I didn't know that one, look at me. And they have to be ready to do that in any situation whatever. So you're in your kitchen and you say, look at me, and there's a treat and she's gonna look at you, right? Because there's nothing happening in the kitchen. You go outside to the backyard and maybe there's a squirrel or there's a bunny, or the tree rustles and there's, but look at me, you know, pretty much she would look at me because she knew I had the tree. On a walk, she's on the leash, look at me, look at me. Sometimes she would, and it's so important that she does it then because there are other dogs around, and there are cars around, and there are kids, and, and all kinds of people. You have to treat, teach your dog, look at me, I'm the one. You look at your human. Or when we go to the dog park, how important that a dog knows, look at me. Hey, Maisie, look at me. Because there's that big thing over there. The Irish wolfhound. The the pit bull. Look at me. Come to me. We're leaving. Look at me. How important it is. Or your pooch just might need to chill. Look at me. The well-trained dog will develop the habit of looking, looking at its human periodically. Maybe there's a treat, but, but maybe their human has a word of encouragement or a word of instruction. So a well-trained dog will look periodically to their human. Paul is saying to the, to the Colossians and to us, look at Jesus Christ, get in that habit. That is where your cues come for life. And that is how you ward off the tawdry and the traumatic of the world. That is where you find the right path to follow in any situation. Look to Jesus. And when we look that way, we get, if, if we don't look at him, we get distracted by the flesh. But when we look to Jesus Christ, we are empowered to live the triumphant life here, now, in this time in this space, in Lafayette, in Michigan, in D.C., in Santiago, in in Milan, in the church, in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools, among our friends, and when we're in contact even with our enemies, look at me, says the risen Lord. Your lives are hidden with me in God, In other words, you are up here already with me because you are in my heart and you're in my mind. You are with me. I have your backs. I have sent the Spirit to live among you and give you power, for I am Lord of all. That is how we keep centered, because when we are looking at Christ, we are being, as Paul said, renewed in the knowledge in the image of the Christ, of its creator. We are renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then there's no division. There is no Gentile or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, or as Paul writes elsewhere, no male or female, but Christ is all and in all. And the world will see the community of Christ, his body, the church as it was created to be, one people, at peace. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Effective together, dancing in our new wardrobe, in our new wedding clothes, in our resurrection robes, serving with our new gloves on. Effective together, undaunted by cultural differences that don't mean anything while able to recognize and call out false ideas that take our eyes off of Jesus. When Christ is all and in all, then we recognize that our salvation isn't attained when you or I shuttle off one day to heaven but that all creation becomes important in his work of salvation, the reconciling work that makes us one, one with that person speaking a different language in the store, one with the guy we don't get along with at work, one with the kid with the disability who needs special care, or the people on the other side of the globe in the country we've never even heard of before, the sin sick, the worn, the addicted, the abused, the fallen, the mentally challenged, the neighbor whose political views are different than ours, folks in church, the churches that aren't like ours, and beyond that, those who pay for the sins that we commit, our sins of greed and consumption, that underpaid factory worker in Asia, those coastal villagers and now the Germans and the Belgians whose homes are underwater because we've all been destroying the earth, the islanders who haven't recovered from the last round of hurricanes. For part of that reconciliation that God will lift everything up to himself is the beloved earth that we are now destroying. For it, too, groans to be made new, as it says in the book of Romans. Yes, all of this. And all of these are included in Christ, who is all and in all. All of this shall one day be redeemed into that great center into which we are baptized. We need a full wardrobe of glory clothes to be a part of his holy and godly work. Now, maybe you came into the sanctuary this morning and you were thinking, well, you know, I live in Lafayette, Indiana. Well, maybe your driver's license says that, but no, my brother, no, my sister. If that is where your faith is today, only right here in this time, in this space, then your faith is too small. Look to Christ, who has already lifted you up in his resurrection to greater and better purposes. Please pray with me. Jesus Christ, Lord of all, Ascended One, center us in you. Continue to remove from us all the effects of sin and the chaos that comes when we look away from following you. May our heart's desire be to look at you and be transformed by your love and wisdom, your compassion, your righteousness. God, I ask that you bless these good people of Lafayette, whose driver's licenses say they are here, but whose lives are hidden with you in Christ. Give them purpose and power. Give them eyes to see all the many people with whom they share your name, and with whom they are baptized into the center. How we need you to be the center of our lives and world. For sin and its destruction threaten to undo us. In your great mercy, God, spare your world. Instruct your people. Give us joy. Raise our eyes and our actions to you. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Amen.